From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. You know, was really kind of the foundation of what the movie Chef was about. It's about being appreciating the people around you, appreciating what you're doing, being mindful about those things. And and I think that's a message that's really nice. Over the past year, an unprecedented number of food shows have hit streaming platforms. It's hard to keep up. Still, one of the bigger surprises has been the Chef Show on Netflix. The show's now in its second season and owes its success largely to the easy camaraderie of its two stars, famed director John Favreau and Chef Roy Choi, his culinary mentor. John really gave me the opportunity to be myself on screen. That's how I am in my kitchens. I think people are smart. I think people pick up on things. I think they just want to see authenticity. Their friendship began when Favreau was preparing to direct and star in his movie Chef, which came out in 2014. After that project wrapped, John and Roy kept cooking together. Since then, they've developed an effortless dynamic that makes it easy for others to join in, whether celebrity or trained chef. There's so many laughs that it's startling to realize how much you're actually learning. I want to play a brief clip for you now. You grew up in Pico Rivera, right? Yeah, born and raised in... I used to cruise. I used to cruise with you. Were you All the time, Really? Man. What'd you drive? From 16 to 18, I had a lowered blazer. I was going to say, yeah. yeah. Like a blazer, the CRXs. Yeah, I was part of a crew out in Norwalk called Street City Minis, and then... So you, did you have the airbrush on the back of the Oh, back? I had the whole airbrush, That's, everything. Those are yeah. so rad, man. I, I play Dungeons & Dragons. Yeah, you play Dungeons & Dragons. <laughs> I cruised a uh, halfling thief. <laughs> Welcome, gentlemen. Hello. So let's go through a bit of a refresher. How did you first meet? Well, I was, um, I had written the script for Chef, and we were looking for an idea for somebody who could help be a consultant at first. And members of my team that I work with were going through, because we had a lot of foodies in my group, and uh, we were going through lists of names of chefs, and they pulled up Roy's name. And I knew Roy, not personally, but I knew his truck because Gwyneth Paltrow had, had brought the Kogi truck to the set of Iron Man. And I loved, I loved the truck. But I didn't realize how close his story was actually to the script I had written. It was so much so that I was actually getting concerned. I was like, this is, he's going to think I ripped off his life story because he had gone from being fine dining to opening up a, a food truck out of passion. And then that led to his success. And so I, I met with Roy, and Roy was very uh, open to the idea of collaborating on it. And his only stipulation was that a lot of films don't get the culture right, and we really have to honor the chef culture if we were going to do this. And, and if we would do it, he would be tireless in helping me train and also putting together menus, overseeing the food. And unlike most consultants, I mean, he was really there day in, day out through pre-production and actually in post-production, too. So... It became much more of a partnership. He became one of the producers on the film, and we formed a friendship that has continued since then. So the film wraps, you do all the stuff you have to do after a f film wraps, but you keep cooking. Talk about that period of time before Chef Show happens, lands on Netflix and starts to air, and where the two of you are just inviting people in to cook together without a deal. I mean, I was one of those people where you said... This is kind of weird, but just come on over. <laughs> it's like full continuity. We're just going to shoot it in real time. And I had a blast. It was one of the best times cooking on camera ever. Yeah, we started filming. I just 
decided that because I didn't want any kind of interference creatively, that I would just finance this thing. And, and I knew what it would take to make something compelling and to treat it more like a documentary than to treat it like a show with a heavy format. I knew that it, from my experience working on shows like Dinner for Five and, and just being in the editing room on movies, that post-production is really when you do, it's really when you write the story. Even if you have a script and you shoot the script that you think you have, it's really post-production where, where the personality and identity of the project uh, comes together and coalesces. And so my feeling was if we just had real moments and filmed us doing the real thing, I was confident that if I had enough time in the edit bay, that I could figure out a format and a structure for it. It was allowing those things to emerge, not unlike how Roy works with food, where he'll pick good ingredients, put them together, start, you know, especially like a savory chef, they'll start adding flavors and start seasoning and start be inspired by what's in front of them. As a filmmaker, you have to be open to that too. And so this format for the chef show emerged and I started adding uh, music uh, that Matthew Schreier oversaw with Leon Michaels. Uh, Matthew is a, a KCRW uh, DJ. And we put together the music, the stop motion, and, and a format emerged from just from us filming, us cooking. And the only objective was to actually be authentic, genuine, and cook with people who were as excited about cooking as we were. One of the things I love the most that I've really noticed on the second season, Roy, you're, the way you gently boss people around is so perfect. I mean, you assign people tasks, and usually they're monumental prep tasks. There's a lot of washing and cutting. And the conversation that starts to ensue while everybody's hands are busy, I think it's genius because it disarms people. That's right. Yeah, and that that was um, the premise of the show from the beginning. That was the vision that John had. And I think we were secretly prepared. Even though we were crafting it as we went, we were prepared f to fill our roles for the show. Because, I mean, John, he knew what he was going to do filmmaking-wise. For me, I really loved shows like Julia Child, Sarah Moulton, America Test Kitchen. Teaching shows. Teaching shows that were cooking and we're real time that we're cooking all the way through. And I can cook almost anything on this planet. I may not be able to make the best thing, but I can pretty much figure out almost any recipe. And then we just decided to cook the stuff that we wanted to eat. So with that, everything became so natural. When you do interviews and medias, people get certain ideas and, and glances of who you are because you don't have that much time. But this show really allowed me to be who I really am in the kitchen. So, I mean, the two of you are so great together, the yeah. way you're constantly ribbing each other. Yeah. And when others get in on the action, the first episode of the second season is Seth Rogen. Yeah. I watched it twice. Oh, I watched great, it man. and I immediately watched it again. First of all, it was hilarious, which of course one expects that, but one does not expect Seth Rogen to have certain skills, like knowing how to break down a yeah, chicken. Yeah, and we learn about that in the show, yeah. And and the fact that you you allow that to unfold, a guy like Seth, I mean, you can't muzzle him, right? <laughs> And just thinking real quick back what you're saying about the natural teaching, that's kind of my, to be honest, my defense mechanism, because these guys are pros, man. I can't keep up wit-wise, you know, and comedy-wise. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been in, but I've been in you're, it. You're not only with John, though. Yeah, not only with John and Seth, but like I've been on podcasts and, and other things with like comedians, and I can see the jokes flying, but I can't catch up. So 
this show allows me to give them carrots, and then and then it gives me time <laughs> to catch up, you know, to catch up to the joke and throw one in. There's one point where Seth asks you, because what you're doing in that particular show was, it was two dishes. It was a fried chicken, and it was one of your mom's braised chicken dishes. Yeah. And the braised chicken dish required a million pastes, which is your thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so Seth asks you why you're putting all these pastes in the pot. Mm -hmm. Why don't we just make one paste? I, um... He actually made me think about it. I, <laughs> I don't know why, but I do know why, but I don't know why. But the reason why is because I, what I told, said was sometimes like with music, sometimes things take layers. And even though from an intellectual standpoint, it may make sense. Why don't you just put everything in one? Because they're all there anyways. But sometimes it takes layers to create depth of flavor. That's why I create a sauce add a sauce, then take that sauce and add it to another sauce, and then combine those into the other sauce that first started, and then that becomes one sauce, but then that combines with four other sauces, but they're all very similar, but they're very different. If so. it didn't taste so good, I would mm -hmm. question it, yeah. but but there it does, you can yeah. taste it. And that's what's also fun, is that after all that joking around and questioning, and it seems like we're just slamming from guardrail to guardrail, then you taste the food and it's amazing. So the proof is in the pudding. I think it frees people up to know that the process, and some of the recipes are super simple, like grilled cheese mm -hmm. or what we did, the peach galette, you know. It's not a lot of steps, not a lot of ingredients, but when you're busy doing something, the conversations become effortless, and, and there's people cooking food that they don't understand, and they learn about it through the cooking and through the tasting, and you have conversations, like at Gorilla Tacos, yeah. uh, you and Chef West had such a common uh, I say we experience. were basically the same person. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and like that, nobody, I don't think anybody would guess that. But, you know, I guess you both have your different takes on, on similar cuisine. But the fact that there was so much in common in your background, that comes out because you're cooking together. And, and to me, that's what makes it interesting. And what I love, too, is the fact that you're pinging back and forth between chef guests and non-chef guests is fascinating. Like as an interviewer, when Seth Rogen because you were referring to one of your pastes that you were making as pork sauce. Yeah. That's the magic sauce? This one is going to be the pork sauce. Pork sauce. Pork, we need pork sauce. Is there pork in there, or is it sauce no, for No, it's a pork, pork marinade um, that we're using for chicken. Yeah. <laughs> that we're using for chicken, yes. This is a confusing <laughs> recipe, guys. <laughs> no one's going to be and so when Seth asked you, well, is there pork in the sauce? Are we, are you putting pork on chicken? And I thought to myself, what a great question. Yeah. And those of us who are in it, right, in the business, you would never ask that question. Yeah, because that's shorthand for us. And John is now, he's he's kind of crossed the borderline and he's halfway in, halfway out. So he understands the shorthand. And for us, it's just, it makes sense. Totally. It's a pork marinade, but we're using it for bok choy. It doesn't matter. It's the flavor. Let's talk a little bit about a couple of the other episodes. You go and visit Daniele Uditi. Yes. Who's chef of Pizzana here in L.A. And for those who don't know him, he's a native of Naples, and he trained in, in the region of Campania. Why did you choose him? I was to his restaurant, and he's from a, a part of uh, Italy that my family's from that I'd never been to. And my grandmother was born here in, in New York. So we're, we're whatever, fourth, fifth generation. But... The food that he cooks and the style of how he cooks, I would just associate with my grandma's food. So I was really 
really into his cooking and also the restaurant when it opened up was was uh, a you know a Jonathan Gold. It all comes down to Jonathan Gold always. He loved. He's the Rosetta Stone, and that's what brought us together and jazz over at Jitlada. And so he left behind this uh, map, like this Indiana Jones map. It's true. And if you stick with what John, you could. And there's a lifetime of experiences you could have by just looking and appreciating things through his eyes. And so what happens is he's such a good writer that you'd be curious. And that place opened up not far from where I live, so I went in there. Daniele was around. And when we started doing it, I asked, you know, would you be open to it? And he's like, yeah, show up at 5 a.m. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're going to make the dough. And so we showed up at 5 a.m. It was dark outside. Made... I assumed it was night after he no, closed. No. It's 5, 5 a.m. Yeah. and we wow. were there. And part of it also is showing that, hey, no, we're going to get we're going to get our hands dirty here. We're not here just to do a little feature. He was blown away by your ability. I, I th- think that's very kind of you. <laughs> I think he was I think he was impressed that we took it that seriously and yeah. that we really He appreciated went in the ranks. it. More he than did. impressed, he was he appreciated the fact that we yeah, we went all the way through with it. And what's great now, because remember, we filmed a lot of that stuff years mm-hmm. ago, some of yeah. it. So the fa- when it finally came on the air and people saw, you know, we put together a little meatball hero. Yeah. Uh, Which and, he wasn't serving at the restaurant. No, no. I was just like, I was just looking at the bread. I was, yeah. The bread was so good and the, the meatballs are so good. I was like, do you mind if we yeah. try? He's like, oh yeah, yeah. Let me throw something together. He he ended up serving that, saying it on yeah. Instagram. And he said it was like the movie Chef where people yeah. were lined up around the block. He had to re, he had to bake more bread mm-hmm. because people wouldn't leave. And he called the sandwich the Grandma Joan, which was my grandma's oh. name. So to me, that's honestly one of my proudest moments, you know, compared to all the things that I've experienced. That one really hit home. I told my dad, and he was proud because my grandma used to make little meatball sandwiches for us when we traveled. They didn't taste as good. Sorry, grandma. They didn't taste as good as <laughs> the ones from there. But it was like he, he, he gave the chef treatment to what I'm used to eating with my grandma. And my grandma's been gone for a long time. And so those flavor profiles that come from that region of Italy to taste those things brought that memory back to me. And the fact that other people are eating the sandwich and waiting in line for it, and now it's going to be part of his menu. I don't know. There's something that's really satisfying about it. And this project, I have to say, as effortless as it started, has turned into something that has meant a great deal for us. I enjoy doing it so much. And and I love now with social media that how people are reacting to it. I love that it's getting them to cook, and I know that you've had people send you pictures of peach galettes, and and, and that's really fun. But also people like, it's so nice to go home and watch the show, and it it makes me feel so good. Or if I'm feeling anxious, I love to watch you guys hanging out. Because actually, in I think it was the Seth Rogen episode, you were musing, I think, or or Seth was musing about, why do people like watching people making food. You can't smell it. You can't taste it. What is it that gives people pleasure? I don't know. I just know it's incredibly cinematic, you know? And soothing for people. It's very soothing. We're like a virtual aromatherapy. (laughs) (laughs) And then you could really eat the stuff because a lot of the stuff you could make. Like you could make, like the day after we cooked together, when we baked the peach galette, there was a, we made two crusts and one was left over. And I took that crust and I made a galette the next day. It, w- it wasn't as good as yours, but it was close. <laughs> sure it was. But sure it was, was close enough that I got to get the sense of satisfaction that I did that. And and what's so great is that yeah. there's like dishes that aren't hard to do, like the uh, pasta, uh, we call it Scarlet's pasta, pasta aiole, and uh, grilled cheese sandwiches. There's stuff that's, that doesn't have a million ingredients that you could 
that you could make. And we even posted yep. some of those recipes on thechefshow.com yep. for people. But we're going to have to do a cookbook or something have to at do some a point. I have to tell you that I'm going to make, well, I don't know if I can unless you write up uh -huh. the recipes, but that braised chicken dish yeah. of your mom's, I, I like I'm obsessed. You can get the recipe from Natasha. Um, but I think it's you're hitting it on the head with the food that we're choosing to show on screen. Kind of like what Robert Rodriguez says, cook the food that you want to eat and cook that food over and over and over again and get good at it. And then you can get good at something else instead of trying to cook something once that's really hard. So I, I think that's a huge part of why the show just connects to so many because it's food that you can actually feel like you can grab and make and eat. So tell me, where have you guys been eating around town lately? I went to Felix for the first time, hmm. and I love uh, Chef Evan Funky. And now what's cool is I used to, when I would travel around with, with Roy, I was always impressed with how, like when we went to Emeralds, when we were prepping to do the film chef, yeah. and I got pulled into the kitchen with Roy, and they would not let him leave. And he was, we were at the chef's table, and course after course, each one with a story as, as he sat there, and prepared it for us. And that was, to me, it's like the lady in the tramp when you get the, the bowl of spaghetti and meatballs in the, by the, you know, and they play accordion for you. It's like you feel like it's the soignee. It's the real experience. And you, I remember you noticed Emerald's eyes as, he watch, as he's watching us and the love that he's giving. And you understanding that and that exchange was, to me, very pure and really cool and memorable. And now when I go to a restaurant and when I went to see, to, to Felix, uh, chef saw me there and treated me almost like a, a honorary chef like and would pull me into the kitchen show me his machine show me how they made it and we i want to i want to cook pasta with him too and of yeah. course it's an amazing restaurant just even if you went there without that it would be great but i was really impressed with how much care they that went into it and that they speak to me now as though i'm somebody i'm not just a tourist moving through there but somebody mm -hmm. who would appreciate what they do I actually don't eat out that much. I'm I, I, a creature of habit. So. I, I completely get it. I get it. John, what about cooking at home? Do you take on projects, things that you like deep? I would imagine you're a deep dive kind of guy. Yeah, I'm a deep dive guy. That's a good read. I would, you know, when I, after working on Chef and, and meeting Aaron Franklin, really worked a lot with smokers, with Adam Perry Lang, getting pointers from people like that. So I worked on brisket for a while. That, you have to stay up all night for that, though. That's a hard one. And then I started doing, after I saw Nancy Silverton on Chef's Table, I really got curious about sourdough. And so I've been doing sourdough for a few years. And now I'm pretty consistent with that. And it's something everybody loves. And if you, you know, if you bring a sourdough that you've cooked to somebody or that you baked, it means a lot. And there's, it's almost like botany, too, because you have to understand the starter and feed the starter. It's like having a pet. It's like having a pet. It really is. <laughs> and then you, and then when you get it right, there's such a great feeling of satisfaction. And everybody loves good, good, good bread. bread. Yeah. One of the things that I find that I found really fascinating is the way you just jump in. There's no voiceover narration establishing what's about to go on. And especially I noticed it in the first episode. It, it was like you just started like in the middle of a sentence, picking up a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I think with streaming, there's too much choice. Like, you, here's what we're doing. Like, do you like it? If you do, this is it. And if you don't, switch now. Yeah. I remember when we first were talking about the show, John had the vision of just jumping right in. And it made sense to me. And using the animation to maybe do whatever explanation was needed. But beyond that, just jumping in, and 
you know, certain things take certain paths, but I, I think like certain restaurants you want to research and learn about the chef and all that. But I equate our show to like driving and then around the corner, all of a sudden you see a string of lights and there's a taco stand with like a huge line and you never knew it was there. And it's a something, a, a bit of discovery. And in that moment, you don't have to learn the whole Wikipedia page about that taquero. You just go and experience the thing. You jump right in. I, I feel like our show has that vibe and that energy. Is it too early to ask if there's going to be a season three? I don't know what we're officially supposed to be saying, but we've uh-huh. filmed other stuff. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of so stuff. So I don't know how it fits in with Netflix. Yeah. So I don't want to step on anything they're doing, but we we did a, a lot and, and we want to do more. And I'll and, and I and we will do more. Um, and what's nice about now is that if uh, and Netflix has been a wonderful partner, but I don't think what we're doing is going to be limited by. It, 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 you know what? That's what's nice about what's going on in media now. You're not limited by gatekeepers. And right now, it's been a wonderful partnership with Netflix. I think we found the right place because yeah. people who love food, there's so much good food content on that streaming service that to have somebody who's curious about Chef's Table find our show is is not a bad thing. And they've been very supportive. and And I think this partnership is going to go on for a while. And Netflix was cool enough to put up the Seth Rogen episode on YouTube. Yeah, have I to think sample that, that was a revolution, revolutionary move. That's right? pretty cool. Yeah, and and that way it's not because usually you have to have be have bring the account. them in. Yeah, they come come yeah. into our tent. <laughs> but it's also an opportunity to see yeah. what totally. it's like if you don't have yeah. it. You know, everything's emerging. You know, there's new the way people are creating content, the way that they're consuming content, short form, long form. You know, we were talking when you greeted me about the deep dive that you could take, what was the show you're telling me? I have to check it out on, on, uh, on YouTube about the pasta grannies, pasta grannies. I want to, I can't wait to watch that based uh, on just really what you're saying. I really want to hear what you have to say. Mm-hmm. This really lovely woman, Vicky Benison, who lives in the Abruzzi region of Italy. She noticed that the tradition of making all of these amazing regional pastas was being held in the hands of women who were 70 and older, and she was afraid that it was just going to disappear. So she started documenting these women. And then she started putting them up on YouTube, Mm -hmm. and now it's like a thing. It's Mm. becoming more and more a robust channel, and and it's like literally some of them you're watching 100-year-old and 97-year-old women who are so engaged. I mean, that's the nice part about technology, really, because when else could that have been something that could have fought for the oxygen required to be Absolutely. And so now if that's something you want to seek out, and you're saying it's getting a a pretty big following, which shows you that... She has almost half a million... I mean, that's amazing. ...on the channel. I think that's amazing. That's rivaling, you know, a, a lot of shows would be lucky to have that kind of viewership on network. So, you know, I'm very grateful that we're getting to do something that's as effortless in coming together as this has been. But now that it has its personality and has its structure... It's something we want to continue doing, and I love seeking out and seeing that type of thing. And you could find whatever you're interested in now, and it becomes hard to just sit down and say, okay, it's 8 o'clock. What am I going to watch on TV? Yes. You're, we're spoiled now. We're getting to watch. You know, the production value might not be as big as, uh, as Iron Chef, but if you're watching these, you know, these grandmothers cooking and passing that knowledge down, to me, that's fascinating. So I, I look forward to seeing it. We should do a collab. Chef, chef show on pasta grannies. No, that's I like, that's totally, I was that, thinking what right you were saying. Alley, I was like, yes. oh, we got to <laughs> find out, you know, we got we to go. It's right up our alley. It is exactly, it's exactly what it is. Because we're talking about home cooks more. Yeah. And, you know, Roy, a lot of what Roy does is a, an extension of, of what he learned 
you know, it's, it's not just his training, but a lot of it's what he grew up around. And and now, now my son is cooking the food, you know, that was passed down from his parents, from Joroy's parents, through me to my son. Yeah, he just so. sent me uh, sundubu that his that's son was cooking incredible. by text. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for giving so much pleasure. Thank you for being part of it too. You yeah. were part of one of our that first so episodes. I think your episode is probably one of the most favorite. Really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so for, nice. For many reasons. You, for your pie, for Jazz, for Jonathan, and just, I think, the camaraderie that all of us had. I like watching Roy be a student. Because yeah. when Jazz came in, Roy was not oh the teacher God. anymore. Yeah. Oh, my God. That was just... <laughs> we got to do that again. Yeah. We got to find really people. really fun. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for everything. I've been talking with Roy Choi and John Favreau. Season two of The Chef Show is streaming now on Netflix. Our women never sort of sit on their laurels. They're not women who sit down. They're always busy. They're always interested. They're always involved with their family and their community. They've got lots of life lessons for us. That's Vicki Benison. She's the brains behind the YouTube show Pasta Grannies, which I was just discussing with John and Roy. The Italian grandmothers, or nonne, on the show have decades of experience, but they might specialize in only two or three pasta styles typical of their region. They are home cooks in the truest sense, making everything from scratch. Hi, Vicky. Hi. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me on the show. Oh, I've been waiting to do this since I first met you a few years ago in Italy. How did this project take flight? Well, I'm lucky enough to have a home in Italy and I was researching Italian food and I noticed uh, that these skills weren't being passed down. It was only women over the age of about 70 that were still making pasta on a regular basis. And I thought, well, someone just needs to make a record of this because everybody knows that Italian nonna are the best cooks ever. But what nonna will be cooking in about 20 years' time is going to be very different did you first think of it as more of an academic endeavor? Did you have an idea that it would become so popular? No, I didn't realize it was going to be so popular. I thought that it would be of interest to committed pasta lovers. Two years ago, I was really happy with 5,000 subscribers because I thought that was really good going. But now we have 416,000 subscribers at the moment on YouTube, which is extraordinary. And I think it's not just the pasta. I think it's People also love the grandmothers. They really connect to memories of their own grandmothers, I think. Who are they? Where did you find them? Is there an age requirement? Talk to me a little bit about the process of identifying a granny. <laughs> it's quite a lot of work, actually. Um, so we do have a speck, if you like. Um, they have to be over 65, although our youngest grandmother was actually about 44 and it's not limited to women. You know, if we find a pasta grandpa, we also are happy to film them. But the nature of making pasta was that it was women's work. And that we try and make sure that they make pasta by hand rather than using machinery. Although we make exceptions for that. Sometimes our ladies have, you know, dodgy shoulders and things like that. So they've taken to using a machinetta, you know, a pasta making machine. And then how we go about finding them is that we decide on an area of Italy and we say, right, okay, we want to make peachy in Tuscany, for example. And I work very closely with a woman called Livia de Giovanni, um, who's Italian, and she has this magic skill of persuading women into saying yes, because 
our ladies don't actually kind of come forward. Um, we find them through friends and friends of friends and people we meet on the train, through mayors, you know, the, the sort of the commune, the parish councils, um, through festival organisers, a whole variety of ways that we track our women down. And quite a lot of women say no, of course. So it takes an Italian to actually um, close the deal, if you like. <laughs> it's so odd in a way, this idea of an older woman making pasta. It's, it's almost a cliche. But in this world of food media that is just gone crazy, I feel like Pasta Grannies is kind of like a bro chef antidote. Yes, that was another motivation. Um, I felt that there was space in the food media for something other than chefs. You know, professional chefs and cooks all say that their mother or their grandmother was their inspiration, but we never see them. And I thought it would be wonderful to put women center stage and celebrate them and their experience. Ever since I met you, I've been besotted by the grannies. <laughs> But I discovered a whole new love when you shared the photograph of Giuseppina oh. watching another granny on a phone oh. and trying to make her pasta. Could you tell us about Giuseppina and talk about that moment? Oh, isn't she wonderful? Um, she's now 97. She lives in Sardinia and... She has this wonderful twinkle in her eye. I mean, she has a great love of life still. When we went to visit her for the second time, she had made us some biscuits to celebrate our visit and in anticipation of her birthday the next day. And so we were there with a the photographer for the book and we were just sort of going through where we'd been that day and we showed her Cesaria and her making Lorigitas, and she was absolutely enthralled by it. Um, she had never seen it before, and immediately picked up the pasta that she had made and started trying to make it herself. So that was fantastic. So tell us, what what is Giuseppina's um, specialty? Oh, she makes macaronis di ungia, um, which is a, uh, translates as a, a thumbnail pasta. And she uses a kind of, it looks like the back of um, a nutmeg grater, and so it makes this little bobbly thing. It looks a little bit like a raspberry. And um, you can serve it any way that you like, but it's, it's, um, she makes it with a simple tomato sauce. And of course, the tomatoes come from her garden. She loves gardening. It's so fascinating that these women are still engaged enough to learn from somebody else. And I feel like a lot of these women, when they make food for their family, they don't even join them at the table. Yes. They, they're background people, right? Yes, they're background people, but they're still in charge, I think. And I think maybe sometimes it's, it's food as love. Um, they're making it because they love their families, but they may not actually have a sort of physical appetite for the food that they've made. It's, it's something about sharing it, being certain that their family are being cared for and sharing their love in that way. But how incredible for them to be the focus of love from this community of watchers that they don't even know. Yes, and I think sometimes it's kind of beyond their their worldview, if you like. Um, they think it's hilarious that <laughs> <laughs> um, the whole world loves them. <laughs> I love that. So one of the stories that really hit me um, in the book pasta granny so we should say it's not just a youtube show now there's a book 
Raquel, who was named dirty by oh, her family yes. and deemed ugly. Yes. So she was relegated to raising the livestock. Yes, she had a tough, tough childhood. Um, I think social services would have been called in had she been around today. But, you know, that was the life of poverty that she experienced. Um, her mum didn't like her. She had several children. But I think she, Raquel showed considerable spirit and, uh, you know, fought back. She used to sort of eat eggs raw and hide the shell by stamping in the uh, donkey poo um, that, so to hide what she'd been doing and, and, and things. So she sort of, I think that kind of, that feistiness has actually kept her going because she's now 97 and something of a local celebrity thanks to Pasta Granny. She's really enjoying that. <laughs> oh, I love that. What was the recipe that she contributed? Uh, she made, the sugar was with cuttlefish and it was stuffed so uh, she makes a kind of cavatelli, which is where you use your fingers and, and roll the pasta across a board, create sort of curves. And then, and then it was a stuffed cuttlefish recipe, which is, uh, you cook that in a tomato sauce. And of course, the cuttlefish is then served as the main course. There are a few collaborations, including Maria and Rosaria's chickpea and pasta soup, and these none from Puglia. And their friends, I guess they made friends through a daily prayer group. <laughs> yes. They meet every, every day for their prayers. And so that's how they're friends. And they were happy to sort of show that very simple dish where you actually fry the pasta, um, some of the pasta, and sprinkle it over the dish, which makes a nice textural change. One of the things that really struck me was this experience of being a pasta granny also gave the women an opportunity to talk about their history to someone who is not of the family and talk about particular larger cultural histories that really touch them. Yes, in a personal kind of way. I think we have situations where by asking questions, we trigger memories, which some of the family members don't actually know about. That's not always the case, of course, but certainly I think having an outsider is kind of changes the dynamic and the kind of memories, if you like. And so we're very privileged when that happens. Tell us about the lasagna-making tournament in Turin. Yes, that's... Um, well, of course, Turin attracts everybody from all over Italy um, because that's where the northern part of Italy is where all the industry is. So all these women, they find friendship through meeting at one of the social clubs there in the suburbs. And a way to sort of help make friends is by making pasta together. I think pasta is a a team activity at its best. And so they organize these little competitions where everybody kind of gets into friendly teams and comes up with their favored lasagna recipe, which of course changes all around Italy. So I was privileged enough to go and spend a day with them. And uh, yeah, so we had sort of four different lasagna to judge at the end of the day. So you were one of the judges? Uh, no, I was one of the observers. I wouldn't dare make it uh, to, to organize. <laughs> I wouldn't actually dare tell a grandmother she wasn't first. <laughs> uh, and a lot of these women are busy with their hands in other ways besides cooking. An enormous number of them are tailors or seamstresses. That's true. Um, it was the only skill pretty much that they were allowed to learn once they left school, which is often around 10 years old. Has working with them changed the way you view aging? 
Yes. <laughs> um, I'm very determined that I'm going to age as well as they do. Um, yes, yeah, so I think that sort of idea of busyness is very important as well, that, you know, don't ever retire. <laughs> And what about you? Have you started making your own pasta? Um, I was making my own pasta anyway. I do make my own pasta. I would never call, I, I don't think I've got the sort of decades of experience under my belt that makes me a pasta granny's myself. But um, I'm, I'm particularly into um, using some of the sort of more heritage wheat-based uh, flours. I, I rather like the nuttiness that that gives to the pasta. Well, I am just so thrilled that Pasta Granny's YouTube has blown up like it has. I think it's one of the most powerful projects around food that I've seen in the last five years. Thank you. And congratulations on the book. <laughs> the book is wonderful because it allows you to flip through and meet the grannies in a different way than you would in the video. That's exactly how I feel about it, is that the book kind of complements um, the YouTube and, and the social media channels. It allows you a little bit more, it gives you longer form storytelling, I think, from my perspective as a writer. It allows you to meet the grannies in a different way, which is lovely. Well, thank you so much, Vicky. I know the time difference is huge, and I really appreciate you taking the time. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on the show. That's Vicki Benison. She's behind the YouTube series Pasta Grannies. Her cookbook by the same name comes out October 29th. Coming up, we're turning from pasta to pizza. And not just any pizza, but the doughy, crispy, and chewy kind, often with lacy edges of golden brown cheese. We're talking about baking pan pizza at home after the break. Stick around. On the newest episode of Nocturne, KCRW's podcast about the night, rancher Sally Gale was driving home in the rain when she noticed a parade of newts risking their lives to cross a small country road and reach the lake on the other side. She knew then that their survival was up to her. If you touch something, you have a connection, and you don't want that beautiful little creature to be run over by some stupid car or truck. Hear the story on Nocturne, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. If pizza can be compared to a religion, it used to be that the cult of Neapolitan pizza, with its super thin crust and wood-fired ovens, was the biggest show in town. But lately, there's another pizza movement afoot, one with a growing number of acolytes. I'm talking about pan pizza, the kind that's cut into thick, doughy squares with an ample topping, golden brown cheese, sometimes baked into frilly edges. This has now become my number one style of pizza, but only when it uses the embedded cheese technique. Peter Reinhardt is a baking expert and educator. He is passionate about pan pizza in all its forms, from Detroit style to Sicilian squares to focaccia. He's even written a how-to called Perfect Pan Pizza. Hi. Hey, it's good to be with you. It's great to have you. You're such a, an amazing bread master and such a pizza aficionado that I'm excited to talk to you about this latest iteration of people's fascination. <laughs> it's amazing also that how many pizza aficionados there are out there. It seems like everybody is an expert on pizza these days. It's true. And because of the internet, everybody can go down rabbit holes, right? Exactly. And, that, and there we are to catch them and to show them the way out. Yeah. But I feel like it's been a long time coming for pan pizza. Mm-hmm. 
that for a lot of years, it hasn't gotten a lot of respect, except in pockets where it has intense regionality and identity. Exactly. You kind of love what you grow up with, but not everybody grew up with it. So how many different styles are out there that we would think of as being some type of pan pizza? That's a good question. I mean, the ones that I've been charting are some of the classics, like the northern Italian pizza that we call focaccia is typically baked in a pan, though it doesn't have to be, but we know it as a, a pan pizza, which is very similar to... You know, the manifestation that came in through uh, New York area in Brooklyn, the Sicilian pizza, which may or may not actually be from Sicily, but they've got that name somewhere along the line. But when you really break it down, it's kind of a variation on focaccia. And then there's another version from Tuscany that they call... Uh, uh, Schiacciata. Yeah, and I always struggle with the pronunciation. You say, you should probably say it better than I always call it Schiacciata, but that's because I'm an American and I, you know, I never know how to say it properly. <laughs> But yeah, and that's really just focaccia from Central Italy. It's just a variation, again, on a theme. And all of these things can be baked in or out of a pan, just like pizza can be baked in and out of a pan. And then uh, Sfingioni, as you said, was from, that's more of the true Sicilian style. Uh, The one that's really having its moment in the sun is what we call Detroit-style pizza, which only has that name Detroit-style attached to it because... It kind of was the hidden gem of the Detroit area for about the last 65 years. Uh, and then somehow it broke out of the pack about five, six years ago when a few chefs in New York and a few of the Detroit guys moved to other cities like Telluride, Colorado, and began making this deep pan pizza, which is different from deep dish pizza. And it got traction. And now it's exploding all over the country. And frankly, when it's done well, It's phenomenal. Describe the ideal qualities it has. So I think what gives the Detroit style its following and what makes it beloved by the people who love it, and pretty much anyone who has it loves it, is what I call the undercrust. That's where it all begins. And I guess to backtrack just a little bit, I have to say that with all pizzas, 80 to 90 percent of what makes a pizza memorable is the crust not the topping. That's my opinion. You know, people argue about that kind of stuff all the time, but I I think I'm pretty good company with the feeling that crust is the key to the difference between a good versus a great pizza, because it's the crust that allows it to be memorable, which is my definition of greatness. Uh, And if you have a great crust, anything you put on top is kind of like a bonus. If you have great toppings, but just a so-so crust, then you've got an interesting, but not necessarily memorable pizza. So just starting from that point, The method for making a Detroit pizza is, you know, requires it to be in a pan with a lot of either olive oil or butter or a combination of the two, greasing the pan so that when you bake the pizza, it really kind of fries the undercrust or sometimes called the underskirt of the pizza. So you get this quality of kind of like the best hot buttered toast that you've ever had. And if you, you know, if you all recall how toast sounds and feels when you bite into it hot out of the toaster, it kind of has a toffee-like crumble to it. And it just breaks into shards and it's very satisfying. It's kind of like flaky pie crust. Um, This new book of yours, Perfect Pan Pizza, has some really incredible photographs in it. And one of my favorite photographs is a picture of this underskirt. Yeah, my favorite too. I love that photo. You, can, you almost want to eat the page. Yeah. And then 
How many inches is that crust? So the thickness of it, and here's where my version of the Detroit pizza differs with some of the ones I've seen executed in Detroit pizzerias, is in theory, it's going to look kind of thick. Like a minimum, it's going to look at least an inch to an inch and a half thick, which I think is, for pizza crust, is a little bready. And I don't like my pizza crust bready, which is probably why I avoided it for a long time until I finally had a version where it was just so well done that I loved it. And what made it work, even though it was thick, was that the interior was not bready tasting, but kind of creamy tasting. So like you have this sort of contrast between hot buttered toast under crust and a very crispy edge all around the perimeter where it fries, you know, in, as it touches the pan with oil. And then you've got this soft, creamy interior crust. And if it's too thick, it'll be bready like, and then I find it just dominates too much and you feel like you're eating too much bread and not enough pizza. But when it's done right, what looks like a thick crust should almost compress and taste, for lack of a better analogy, like the best bowl of cream of wheat that you've ever had. And so you get all these factors going. And, and, and of course, we know from some of the later books that have come out about, you know, salt and acid and, and heat and all these contrasting factors that make food taste great. When you have all of this going on in one bite, it elevates it to another level. And so then you've got, the, of course, on top of all that, you've got your cheese and toppings and sauce and whatever else you're going to use. My innovation, I think this is sort of my original technique that I developed with the team down in uh, Texas as we were working on a, a Detroit-style pizza for their restaurant, is we add half of the cheese onto the dough before it rises for its final rise. Because so we give the dough about four to five hours of rise after it fills the pan. And as it rises around this cheese, it embeds the cheese in the dough. And then you put the other half of the cheese on right before you bake it. So you're basically getting cheese on top of cheese, uh, which is now, to give another analogy, it's kind of like you're eating a great grilled cheese sandwich with cheese and toppings on top of that. So you just think of how much we love a great grilled cheese sandwich, how much we love pizza, put it all together, and voila, it's like unlike anything you've ever had. And I'm, I'm pretty excited about it because every time I make it for people for the first time, they flip out. They go, I've never had a pizza like this before. It looks like it's going to be too thick, but it's not. It doesn't look like anything I've ever had before, but I can't believe how good it is. So I think we've kind of added maybe a new word to the pizza vocabulary, the embedded cheese technique. And if you get a chance to try it, I think you'll agree that it's a game changer. I'm definitely going to try it. Now, in the book, you talk about using Munster if you don't have access to brick, which is the, as you said, the traditional cheese. Yeah, um, brick is made in Wisconsin. It was developed about 100 years ago by a, a German cheesemaker, and it picked up its own following. And the guys who started the Detroit pizza style about 1945-ish or so, right after World War II. And all the story, the backstory on that can be easily found, but with a quick internet search, just go to Detroit Pizza Origins, and it'll tell you that whole story. And he, he had access to this Wisconsin brick cheese that he liked. It's kind of a in flavor, a little bit of cheddar flavor, a little bit of, uh, you know, kind of a provolone, uh, even a gouda. All those complex cheeses is much more flavorful than just plain mozzarella. And that's what he used. But it's very, very hard for home cooks to find it. So I called one of the companies that makes it. And there's only a few creameries in Wisconsin that make brick cheese. 
And I said, what should I tell people, you know, to do? Because I've made it with lots of other cheeses and they work. But what do you recommend? And he said, we only make two cheeses in our place. We make brick and we make Munster. And what most people don't know is, is that the process for making both is almost identical. We put a slightly different enzyme in the brick, gives it a little more tanginess. But otherwise, it's very similar. The Munster's a little creamier, which I find to be a plus. But the problem with the Munster is, to me, it's not quite edgy and sharp enough. So what I like to do, I've, I've made it with 100% Munster. What I prefer to do is about 25% cheddar, like a medium-aged cheddar, and 75% Munster. And I get a lot of the flavor profile of the brick cheese. And then my other favorite cheese to use is Fontina because it's just wonderful cheese. And you can do that almost just by itself. It's so good. But any good melting cheese will work. And I encourage people to just kind of play around with their, with their favorite cheeses and mix and match. And you can't go wrong. It's like as long as the cheese will melt, uh, you don't want to use dry cheese like Parmesan or Romano because it will burn before it melts. But any good melter will work on the top. Now, let's talk about dough for a minute. Sure. You have three master doughs for this type of pan pizza. Mm -hmm. You have a whole wheat, a levan, and you have a yeasted white, correct? Yeah, kind of the classic white, which ends up always being the most popular because it's what we're familiar with and it works really great. There's an interest in whole grain flours these days, and I encourage it. I've written a lot of books about baking with whole grain, so I try to always offer that option. But I have found, again, that for these pizzas, people want them light and airy. So I suggest maybe a blend of 25% whole wheat flour or maybe rye flour and 75% bread flour. And that gives you enough of sort of that country effect, uh, almost like a pan de campagna. Uh, it's got enough wheat that it gives it some earth tone, but it doesn't become too heavy or over-dominate with the flavors of whole wheat. But there's no rule that says you can't go 100% whole wheat if you prefer. And then that's dough number two. So I call that the country dough. And then the third dough, as you mentioned, is the uh, levan. It's a naturally leavened bread using sourdough starter. And it gives you the option of either using all sourdough, which is a longer fermentation time and requires a little more patience. But for those people who like working in the sourdough side, they know what that takes. Or you can kind of use the sourdough starter and some yeast as well and do what I call the mixed method, which allows the dough to stay on the same rising schedule as uh, the regular dough, as the classic dough, but you get the complexity of the sourdough starter as well. So it's three different doughs, but with quite a number of options in between. So let's talk about toppings for a minute. I've always thought that if you have a really beautiful, fragile, in the sense that it's very wet and with a very airy result, that overloading the pizza is kind of a sin. Yeah. Yeah. Well, certainly with the, you know, classic Neapolitan pizzas, you can overload it like we do in, on American style pizza and do kitchen sink pizzas. But to pizza purists, that's considered a kind of sinful in a, in a way. So we always, I always suggest maybe no more than three toppings just, just so that you don't muddle the flavors. But with these pizzas, it's kind of a different kind of pizza. It's really, it can be more, let's say, embellished, more, designed. I, I use as my inspiration my favorite sandwiches. Like uh, I'm from Philadelphia, so I, I think of hoagies. I think of cheesesteaks or roast pork sandwiches, which have, again, not like kitchen sink pizzas, but a number of ingredients that work together in harmony. And anything you can do on a sandwich, you can certainly do on a pizza. Pizza, as you said in the intro, is just dough with something on it. And a sandwich is just dough with something in it. 
So they're really kind of kissing cousins. So about half the pizzas that I came up with for this book were inspired by some of the great iconic sandwiches of the world. Thank you so much, Peter. Oh, it's my pleasure. I could talk pizza all day, so we have to take it offline sometime, <laughs> and, uh, and we'll go out. Next time I'm in L.A., uh, let's go on a little pizza quest together. I would love that. Thanks, Evan. That's baking expert Peter Reinhardt. We've been talking about baking pan pizza at home, also the subject of his new book, Perfect Pan Pizza. After the break, a new restaurant review from L.A. Times critic Bill Addison. Don't go anywhere. We're back on KCRW's Good Food. I'm Evan Kleiman. Finally, we close out with a new restaurant recommendation from Bill Addison. Hello, my dear. Good morning, Evan. This place we're going to be talking about, I find incredibly exciting because Uh, of the man who is at the helm. Yeah, you know way more about him than I do. This is my intro to him. Lincoln Carson, I think, is one of the, I'm sorry to say, under-the-radar guys here in L.A., and he should not be. I absolutely got that impression from his debut restaurant, Bon Ton. It's fantastic. So, because people know him as a pastry chef, let's talk about the savory stuff first. Okay. Because I find it really fascinating when pastry chefs turn to the savory side. 100%. Same. And, you know, I made desserts in restaurants when dinosaurs and Doc Martens roam the earth. So that is a particular interest of mine, too. Bon Temps is an all-day restaurant, but dinner is still really the highlight. And what you find, even throughout the savory meal, before you get the desserts, there's the mind of a pastry chef at work here. Like the crab cake, for example. You know, I grew up in Maryland, so I'm used to a misshapen, lumpen thing. And this is Dungeness crab that is mixed with scallop mousse and creme fraiche and like pressed into a tube and sliced and then stacked with a very like phyllo thin piece of pandemie bread that was dyed black with squid ink with glossy slices of avocado over top and a salad erupting from it. it. It is a beautiful, edible work of art, and it reminds me of a beautiful pastry. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting, the amount of precision and a particular investigation of flavor that pastry chefs tend to bring to the savory side. Yes, right? Because it it gets specific In the same way that a dessert often has one main component, but then a couple other very clear flavors, like his platter of chicken is, I I might eat that for my birthday next year. Seriously. From your review, that was certainly the most intriguing (laughs) dish to me. It was incredible. It's basically a whole chicken broken down in some really involved ways, but it includes force meat made into sausage and fried and everything is incredibly moist and there's the supporting flavor of creamed leeks underneath and kind of a theme of black truffles and that's it it's really clear and really precise and really delicious and i think that if i were to go there for dinner the first thing i would want to order would be the gougere yes filled with chicken liver mousse the gush in just the right way. Again, like all that thinking, chicken liver mousse can be kind of thick, but this is like... So it's like pastry cream. Yes, exactly. And, and it's a gougere. <laughs> yes, so smart. Yeah, really smart. 
where is this restaurant? It's around the corner from Bestia, right across from the new Firehouse Hotel that opened. So kind of in the center of the Arts District, a little out of the way, but people are coming to Bestia anyway. So I'm hoping this place catches on, particularly because it has a really charming patio on an alley. It's a great place to hang out. Yeah, I love that alley. I should quickly say, too, that dinner is not cheap. But if this sounds at all intriguing, come in the morning for pastries. They're brilliant. A ricotta and strawberry Danish is, I think it's the best Danish in the city, honestly. Try me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's the great thing about this place is that you can dip in when you want and at the level that you can deal with on that particular day. You could even show up at the bar and eat dessert later at night and just get a sampling of the chocolate souffle with uh, chartreuse and genopy ice cream that's incredible and a beautiful peach pavlova right now. Well, thank you so much, Bill Addison. Thanks for having me, Evan. That's it for our show this week. In case you missed any of it, listen on our website or on KCRW's mobile app. Of course, you can always subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And as always, please leave us a review if you liked what you heard. My thanks to the Good Food team. They are Nick Liao, Laryl Garcia, Joseph Stone, Chuck Previteri, and Ronnie Mickelson. Special thanks to Laura Kondarajan, Amy Ta, Kenny Ng, and Jacqueline Kim. I'm Evan Kleiman. I'll be back next week with more good food. <laughs>